evening, everybody, and welcome to the Things Can Only Get Banter podcast, coming to you from sweltering Britain, as per usual, on this very, very regular podcast that comes out almost every week, or two weeks, or three Two months. months. Two months, whatever. Shit happens. Um, we've been having some technical difficulties, ladies and gentlemen, which might explain why why my co-host this evening is somewhat short shrift with his technology. Little, little embittered might be the uh, correct term of phrase. Anyway, yeah, some 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 stuff has happened in the country since we last recorded a podcast. Uh, Conservative Party continues to implode. Uh, they found yet another lovable pervert within their ranks and decided that this was really one too far. What are you talking about imploding, Alex? I, for one, welcome Liz Truss as our new overlord. Yes, we can't wait for Queen Empress Truss to come and save us. She's a candidate you can trust. Fun fact, I do believe it would be the first time... In a very long time, if ever, I, I'm sure some of our prime ministers have been named George, but that the monarch and the prime minister would shame, share, share the same first name if she becomes prime minister, which would be, you know, I think great for the Labour Party, if not so great for the country. But we can discuss all that later on. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think if there's any other examples, and I think you are correct. I will, I will try and... I'll, I'll just not pay attention for the rest of the episode. I'll just come back to kind of cycling through 19th century prime ministers. So, problem is... Most of them were Victoria. Yeah, you're not going to get one called Victoria. Um, Before we get waylaid with our monarch chair. I, I, I bet there was a... I bet there was a prime minister called George during the reign of... Uh, that's George. what I thought. I was sure there was probably a George. George one, two, and three. But let's... Let's get into it. Um, Why, wait, so, wait, wait a second, Michael. This is the kind of thing the the audience needs to know. Okay, was there a prime minister called George? There were many. Yeah, George ha, Grenville. Ha, this, is, this is this is not an interesting fact. You got yeah, George Grenville. Actually, George Grenville, I think, was the only one. But anyway, was he the during the reign of a George? Yes, he was. Um, George, George III, Grenville. I'm imagining. George III, yes. He was cool. uh, the Whig supremacy. For the um, first time in about 200 years. There we go. That'll do. Well, Prime Minister Truss, you know, we may well eat our words because there are still three competitors in the race, but it is looking very much like we we will be welcoming Prime Minister Elizabeth Truss. And then within... A short space of time, hopefully, welcoming Prime Minister Keir Starmer because the Conservatives picking Liz Truss is the equivalent of Labour picking Corbyn. It's got all the Labour supporters I know rubbing their hands in glee at the thought of the Conservatives picking a candidate as terrible as Liz Truss for Prime Minister. I mean, I would be more reserved on that point, I think, being as Corbyn did sort of go against expectations shall we say and i think there is possibly something to be said for the possibility of a conservative um sort of revitalization once boris johnson is gone i'd agree um to an extent 
I think Liz Truss has a lot of the Borisy elements that people like, but but she's lacking Boris's charisma, and that's his unique selling point. But it is. But yeah. I think we can discuss all this in our conservative race part of the podcast. So we have to keep to the uh, keep to the schedule now. And even well, if, and I, don't, I don't know if our listeners want to be here for an hour and a half. <laughs> I mean, I was going to go off on 20 minutes about George Grenville. Um, I mean, here's a fun history counterfactual for you. Do you think if Boris Johnson had been prime minister in the 1760s, the American Revolution would have happened? Write in your answers for next episode. Well, he was born in the state, so who knows? What would have happened if John Major had come to power in 1940 instead of Winston Churchill? Okay, right. ladies and gents. So back Agenda. to it. All right, Michael, what's been going on? At, oh, sorry, Councillor Butcher. Um, Michael got to use some of his executive power um, a while ago. He, he signed my passport. No, he didn't sign my passport. He verified my identity because he is a member of a apparently respectable profession. So there, there you go. The huge, huge um, responsibilities that come with... Um, yes, I've also it. provided a reference to a friend for a government job. And Councillor was one of the few jobs that was allowed to provide references. So there we go. My powers know no bounds. Yes, it's like the Godfather, but very, very low budget. Okay, what's been going on in Cricket Green? Oh, lots of fun stuff. Obviously, um, we haven't really had a chance to explore what it's actually like being a councillor yet, but a lot of it is doing events locally. Yeah, well, but a lot of what we've done in the first couple of months has been events locally. For example, we, we hosted a huge Jubilee party on on the cricket green or the green adjacent to the cricket green. And it was a huge success. All right, Mr. Two, uh, a lot of fun. <laughs> you know, um, for the first time in the history of Merton, we had a big t- big uh, TV screen bought to the east side of the borough in our ward in cricket green, which showed the tennis bringing Wimbledon to Mitcham for the first time. You know, and I think it's these huge symbolic but still important gestures that show that how grateful we are to the electorate for putting their trust in us once again putting their trust in the labor body and we we plan to we plan to reward that trust you know we plan to reward that faith um and i think part of that is just showing the community that you care and that you're active and that you turn up to events you organize events for people to come along because you know, that's that's what it's all about, really. The best councillors are the ones who have ties to their local community and are active in their local community. You know, some some people will just turn up to their meetings and vote, but the best councillors are the ones who are grounded in their wards and in the activities that go on in their wards. So, you know, we've we've had a we've had plans to a variously um, do things over the next four years. Um, you know, fly tipping has been a real problem and we're trying to get all of that cleaned up. You know, we, Jill, Azama and I have been working on a plan of action in the short term and the long term. So what we want to achieve over the next six months and what we want to achieve over four years. And as well as that, we're doing multiple site visits. I visited a recycling centre and you know you're not a real politician until you've put on a high vi and a and a helmet and gone did, and walked around a place where you have no idea what is going on. 
did you have a photo op with some enthusiastic absolutely absolutely you gotta have a photo op that's that's local politics or politics in general you know what would bojo be like if he didn't have a high vi and helmet you know and um and of course never-ending casework that comes in though i will admit things were very intense for the first month after we were elected and though they are still quite intense they have calmed down somewhat since then so yeah a lot going on in cricket green and a lot to be proud of um i feel like it's we we've been a very active team so far and word is getting around you know my aunt told me she's had a couple of people say to her isn't isn't your nephew the uh the local councillor so that's always interesting so are people now coming to her for favors because she's connected to you well my aunt is sort of high up in the local church so <laughs> parishioners will often you know just sort of say to me aren't you the local councillor i know you because i know your aunt through church yeah the secret catholic connections and Oh yeah, it's it's like uh much like Al Smith, you have a secret tunnel to the Vatican. <laughs> oh yes. But no, yeah, things have been things have been going really well in Cricket Green and although, you know, I'm constantly tired nowadays. I think that comes with the territory. Um I've developed a love of coffee for the first time in my life. Yeah, let let the let the audience be aware here that um just a few months ago I invited Michael for a, to the UK Coffee Festival because I had a, um, a VIP ticket available to come with me and he turned it down because he was not a fan of coffee. But now the tables have turned. Quite, quite. I, I regret my actions. Michael now and, um three pints of coffee into his eyeballs every day. You're not far wrong. But yeah, that's what's been going on in Cricket Green. But what's also really interesting is what's been going on in wider Merton, in Merton politics. Um one of the things we've been pushing, particularly in Cricket Green, is the council tax rebate. Um, because although people are getting £150 council tax rebate from the government, uh, that's only you only get it automatically if you pay by direct debit. And in my ward in Cricket Green, um, we have the highest percentage of people who do not pay by direct debit. And so our brilliant MP, Siobhan McDonough, along with the councillors, have been organising events where we go to various libraries around the borough and we get people to sign up to get their rebate. And it's proved really successful. And it's great to just, once again, get your face out there and get people who know you. Um, Excellent. Yeah, that's proved. That that does sound like a um, very worthwhile community initiative um, you're pursuing there. So congratulations. Yeah, I mean, obviously this is this is a work in progress. As I said, we've got our six-month plan. We've got our four-year plan. One of the big problems in our ward is we've got lots of disused buildings, former pubs, historic buildings that have fallen into disrepair. And, you know, over the next four years, we want to do something about that. We want to get those buildings, revitalize them. But these are problems that have been going on for 10, 15 years. So <laughs> when when people raise this with me, they sometimes expect me to click my fingers and get it all solved tomorrow. <laughs> and I do have to I let people down by saying it isn't always that simple. But I, I, wait, wait a second. Are you saying a local councillor doesn't have supreme powers over the local community? Are you saying there nah. might be some barriers in your way? 
oh, may, maybe a couple, you know, maybe a couple. But on a whole, things seem to be going really well in Merton. We've elected our new leader, Ross Garrard, councillor for Long Thornton, and he has served previously for four years, and he is now the new leader of Merton Council, and he is doing a brilliant job. He's hit the ground running. He's doing site visits to all of the Clarion buildings in Merton, Clarion gaining, gaining some notoriety here for, should I say, mismanagement of a few properties. But Ross is doing an amazing job. Um, he's just going around and visiting people. And once again, doing the main thing that people as local councillors, as the leader of the council, are expected to do. And that is basing themselves in the local community, getting involved, meeting people. Yeah, and I'm I'm really proud of him, and I'm really glad we have a new leader with passion and drive, ready to sort of revitalise the borough of Merton. So, no no regrets about becoming a councillor. No, no regrets so far. I I don't so much appreciate the the lack of time and lack of sleep I have, but I expected that to come with the territory, so I'm somewhat prepared. And you know there are. There are things going on. I, I'm, I'm getting great experience in the planning applications committee. I've joined the planning committee, which is somewhere where I actually can make a real difference because I can vote to approve plans or not vote to approve them. And that really does shape the impact of what goes on in your borough, what buildings get built, what businesses get opened. And I'm also on the children and young people's committee because I got into politics to inspire more young people to get involved and vote. So those are my two main passions, and I'm glad to do them. Of course, in Merton, we've had the tennis in Wimbledon, which has been a huge success. And I got one of my few councillor perks when I got uh, subsidised tennis tickets, which was great. And yeah, um, it's it's very interesting because I've had a few council meetings now. I know the lay of the land. Um, I'm waiting to make my maiden speech, which I will tell you all about when I do so. We, we've had a few, uh, obviously we're dealing with a new climate with an emboldened Lib Dem group who have reached double digits for the first time. And they have also hit the ground running. You know, their their social media game is very good. They like playing a few tricks on us with social media and trying to make Labour look bad. Um, and not always telling the whole side of the story, funnily enough. Um, so I the Lib Dems and their dodgy bar charts coming back again. Gotta love a Lib Dem bar charts. Ah, oh, quite right, quite right. Um, it's it's a new world. We've got the Tories in Merton quite diminished, though they are still active. I, I, I particularly with all the chaos going on nationally at the moment, has been interesting to chat with my Conservative colleagues. And yeah, the the Lib Dem group feeling emboldened and up to some of their you know typical bar chart tricks. I thought that might just be a thing they do in elections, but no, it is a thing they apparently persevere doing even once elected. I, I think the Liberal Democrats just attract people who are fans of bar charts. That's the only explanation for this. Yeah, quite. Misleading bar charts and misleading information does seem to be part of their field. I mean, they, they have been um, taken up on this several times by the Electoral Commission. <laughs> Not surprising. But no, I actually I get along really well with a lot of my Conservative colleagues, my Liberal Democrat colleagues. There is a real sense of you know, camaraderie there, you know, we try and be nice and friendly to everyone in the chamber. Of course, things get heated and people get passionate 
but on a whole, there's always, at least on my behalf and on many of the many of my colleagues from all parties, there is a sense of civility there, would and that I do appreciate. Would you say there's a sort of combined commitment to the community? That I mean, that's the thing. I party at that I I like to. Yeah, it's not Trump level and it's not Boris level. Um, I truly like to, it's something my mum taught me, you know, to try and see the best in everyone and believe that ultimately most people in this world are good. And I like to believe that all of my colleagues, regardless of our political differences, got into this for the right reasons, to try and do the best for the people of Merton. And so far, whilst there are many differences and politics can be, a cutthroat game at times, I still do believe that. Excellent. Now, how do you think the national picture has affected local politics? So I would say and the main... Who, who are the Merton... What's the gossip in the chamber? Who, who, who do the Merton Conservatives want to be elected? Oh, this, yeah, this is a good question. So I would say the main thing that happens whenever it looks like a prime minister is weakened or that a prime minister is on their way out as it is with with Bojo at the moment, I would say the main thing is loads of local projects, loads of local policies get put on pause because you don't know what the new regime are going to do. Um, and it is a case of stalling and backtracking because if, if the new prime minister comes in and completely changes all the policy, then a lot of the the civil servants and councillor employees basically say that there was n- there is no point in us working on a project that currently has the government's backing for it to for it to be repealed six weeks later. So a lot of big decisions, a lot of big projects are put on hold until we know what our new prime minister the direction they want to take. So not a lot of leveling up going on from central government at the moment well there wasn't a lot of leveling up before that but (laughs) um as for as for i've had a few conversations with various um conservative colleagues about who they're backing i think the merton tories on a whole have pretty much rallied behind rishi sunak um rishi sunak helped them fundraise for the local elections earlier this year generally as we've said before the the conservatives in merton tend to be on the more sort of liberal cameronite side and that falls very well in rishi sunak's camp though of course different conservative councillors will have different opinions but as a whole i think they're throwing their weight behind sunak interesting and has anything about the national picture sort of fed into what happens in local politics well, you know, it was it was rather funny because we had our full council meeting the same night that the government collapsed. It, it was just we were all in the chamber debating local issues. And then there were people, there were councillors on their phone saying that's another one gone. Another one bites the dust. I mean, it, it, it was a rare sort of showing of uh, unity between the Merton, Merton Labour and Merton Lib Dems. And we were all just cracking jokes about the collapse of the government and the end of Boris Johnson's premiership. And even a lot of the conservative, a lot of my conservative colleagues aren't unhappy to see the back of him. Um, he's caused them no end of misery and electoral misfortune. Um, but yeah, other than sort of everything sort of being put on hold until we have a new prime minister and know what direction things are going to go, 
I would say it's more just sort of waiting to see now. That is the unfortunate thing. Everything is fed from the top. Local politics can't really... It's kind of like the civil service. Everything plows on, but no decisions are are really taken sure. because you've got a lot of it coming from the top. So any, anything else on Merton before we uh, move on to the national picture? Well, going forward, as I said, I'm waiting to make my maiden speech, um, which hopefully will come at the council meeting in September. We've got a few events coming up in Cricket Green. We've got the opening of a, a local cafe, pop-up cafe at the Leisure Centre. Um, we've had some great events, such as the reopening of um, Cannon's House. Yeah, it's it's looking like a bright bright summer ahead of us. I'm I'm very excited. You know, things things in council world take a sort of a lull in August. There aren't as many meetings, and that is the time when I really want to develop my own plans for my outreach program to go into schools and talk to children about local politics and government and democracy and why they should be excited by it. And I'll let you know how that goes as we progress. Any any teasers on what the maiden speech might be about? Not yet. I know roughly what I want to say uh, from a sort of a personal perspective, but I don't know what the theme will be on yet. So when we know what theme we'll be debating, I will let you know. Stay Excellent. tuned, folks. Okay, so national picture, by-election misery. Oh, by-election misery for the Conservatives and joy for... Joy for Labour and the Lib Dems once again. Wakefields. Wakefield. Yes, Labour's first by-election gain in 10 years after their previous gain in Corby under Ed Miliband. Now, I'm I'm very pleased and very glad that Labour won Wakefield. Um, it's a great by-election gain. The swing was really great. The only thing that fills me with a little bit of apprehension is the swing from Tory to Labour was 12.7%, which was the same as it was in the Corby by-election in 2012. And at the next general election, Labour lost Corby to the Conservatives. And so my my only sort of qualm about this brilliant win is that there is time for the Conservatives to turn it around and win it again. As as we know, by-elections can give you a great picture of what's going on locally or where the national picture is at that moment in time, a snapshot of where the country is at that time, but it's not necessarily where the country is going to be at the next election. And it's important to remember that. And even now we have a change of Prime Minister that's going to change the game. Anything on Tiverton? Tiverton! Um... I think we've all just gotten used to the Lib Dems pulling off stunning by-election wins. I mean, they've been doing it since about 1990. Um, but just to take it back to back to Wakefield quickly, one thing that I think was really important to say was that Wakefield was number 326 on the Conservative seat list. That's to say, if they could not win Wakefield, they would not have a majority. And losing Wakefield by the number they did certainly suggest the Conservatives would not win a majority. And of course, we know that in a home parliament, options for the Conservatives are far more limited than they are for Labour. Um, And that's to say that Wakefield was 241 on Labour's list. So we know at the very least that they're doing better than they were in the Miliband era. And if we see the size of the swing from Conservative to Labour, 
that we saw in Wakefield, 12.7% repeated across the entire country, Labour would gain 119 seats, putting them on 324, just shy of an overall majority. That is the current picture, as we know things can change. But at the moment, it's all leading up to Labour largest party in a hung parliament. Just seats off a majority. What do you make of that, Alex? <laughs> I don't know. Every, everything is changing dramatically every single day. It's it's crazy, isn't it? I mean, I think one of my one of my favourite facts comes from um, Ben Walker of the New Statesman, who I quote a lot, but it's generally because he is right about most of the things he talks about, and he says that in general. People only think about politics for about normal people, you know, not political junkies like you and I, Alex. Most normal people only think about politics for about five minutes a week. And people don't like being made to think about politics for more than that. That's why when the news is wall-to-wall politics and wall-to-wall political coverage, people get pissed off at the people in charge, generally the people for making them think about politics because they don't want to think about politics. They want to think about their lives. And generally the sign of a a country that's being run well and that's going well is that politics is not the main thing in the news. That's New Labour got away with that so many times in their time where, you know, there were they weren't the headline story because government was just generally running reasonably smoothly. And that's what people like. They like smooth government. It's totally fine. They don't want to think about politics outside of an election. Most people. But yeah, a conservative leadership election is certainly forcing politics to the top of the headlines. Yes. So, obviously, the 1922 committee vote. Yeah, of course, Boris won. Uh, he won that the Conservative Party had confidence in him. Uh, he won by a lot. He won by a smaller margin than Theresa May, than uh, Margaret Thatcher. There's not a lot of confidence and, in the room. And then they then they forced him out anyway. <laughs> they voted that they had confidence in Boris Johnson, and then they didn't. Yeah, Bo- Boris is going. Um, being dragged out, kicking and screaming. But yeah, I I think I will I will let well, you uh, yes I mean, summarize, Mister Keys. I think with with the um, it's not particularly groundbreaking to say that I think Chris Pincher was the um, final final catalyst. Um, another another pinching MP, shall we say? Well, yes, because obviously the Tiverton by election was called because. Neil Parrish. Neil Parrish was watching pornography in the House of Commons and claimed he was just looking for pictures of tractors. Um, <laughs> and yeah, but Chris Pitcher. It's was, all just built, hasn't it? And then we had. This was the straw that broke the camel's back. Yeah, and it's, it's strange it took this long to break. Because mm. so ultimately, the thing that did for Boris was the revelation that he had been made aware of the allegations against Pitcher, but decided to appoint him as deputy chief whip in spite of that. 
that was the, would you agree that was the the, the straw yes. that broke the camel's back definitely he he had very much ignored um and then coming up ignored any negative stories he heard about chris pincher and then coming off the back of um imran khan who obviously another catalyst for a by-election a few months ago who was, all the by-elections have been caused by tory sent, mps yeah, doing imran khan was obviously heinous things sent to prison for um molesting a teenage boy it's i mean it's just a shock it hasn't happened before now really and i think i think part of it was that you know and this is going to be a weird comparison between between jeremy corbyn and boris johnson here but you know some of some of corbyn's most ardent supporters because of the result of the 2017 general election, where Labour managed to force a hung parliament, despite all the polls saying it would be a Tory landslide. And again, up up until the 2019 general election, all the polls suggested Tory majority. But there was still this expectation, still a slim hope that the Corbyn might be able to do it again and pull off a hung parliament. And then, of course, it wasn't. And I think the Tories had that same sort of expectation of Boris Johnson, you know, despite everything, despite all the chaos and all the damage and all the people that disliked him, maybe, just maybe he could do it again. And then they eventually, then I, there were just too many scandals and I, they decided think, it think, wasn't worth the risk. I think if there had been fewer scandals, I think he probably could have done it. I, I agree. I agree. But... His it's reputation... Just, it's just scandal upon scandal upon scandal. Like Everyone's forgotten about Partygate now because there's far more juicy scandals. Yeah. And I think, the, I think the real the real nail in the coffin is the fact that only 26% of Leave voters wanted Boris Johnson to stay as Prime Minister. And that was the, that was the demographic that he built his majority on, was Leave voters. Hmm. And the fact that the fact that just shy of a quarter of them wanted him to stay was a was a terrifying indictment. And I think the Tories came to the sensible conclusion that even though there wasn't a, a natural successor waiting in the wings, anything had to be better than, than Boris. I think the broad coalition of Leave voters, which once existed, has somewhat broken down i would agree i think conservative leave voters sort of in in the south and in the midlands labor red wall voters which once formed a pretty solid block has begun to drift apart i would agree and something i would add to that and this was something a conservative councillor in Merton said to me when we were having a chat and I sort of asked him why are you backing Sunak and he said to me in his opinion that the red wall was going to go back to Labour whoever they elected he said the red wall will go red again and we need a leader who can shore up the blue wall and stop the Lib Dems because he felt that was the only path that the Tories had to keeping their majority was if they abandon their Northern aspirations and go back 
to the coalition of voters that David Cameron had in 2015. I don't necessarily think that will be enough, but their opinion is that is their least worst option is to abandon their northern aspirations and go back to relying on southern Tories in blue wall seats. Yeah, it's it's a lose-lose situation, whatever they do, really. Because there there, there was a time where it really did look like the future of the Conservative Party, or at least the future of Conservative Party growth, was amongst the four. In the North. Yeah, and I'm not not saying things will return to the way they were, but I think that potential for really massive expansion of Conservative, the Conservative vote in the North is really... um, it's gone. It's, it's gone. gone. Yeah. And I think it's it's shocking because in, in 2019, the Conservatives won, won the Red Wall, as it's known, for the first time in 100 years. And they had this real opportunity. They had actually committed to achieving this levelling up agenda and committed some policies and some funding to it rather than just bringing it up as a talking point. They could have turned that into a new heartland if they had actually devoted themselves to that mission. But well, instead, did, Boris Johnson... Another sound, sound bite. It was Northern Powerhouse. Exactly. It was, it was a sound bite. And Boris Johnson pissed away all that goodwill that was wrapped up in, in specifically his name, not the Conservative Party. And I think that isn't talked about enough. You know, these Northerners, the, the Red Wall voters did not necessarily vote for the Conservative Party. They voted for Boris Johnson to get Brexit done. And then Boris Johnson became the liability and the dead weight and the Conservatives have got rid of him. And now it's like, where do we go? And that's why so many, I think, are thinking we we rely on what's true and tested and we go back to trying to win in the South and we play up the threat of the SNP and Labour. They're just going to try and do 2015 campaign all over again, but I, I mean, don't think it's going it to work this time. It wouldn't surprise me if they try sort of playing up the threat of the Jacobites at some point soon. But it's... <laughs> That's the thing that, you know, part of the reason the Conservatives won in 2015 was because this whole concoction of the Conservatives had a clear path to majority, which was through Liberal Democrat seats. Well, the Lib Dems don't have any seats now, so who are you going to take seats off? There was also the threat of Sturgeon being able to boss Miliband around because Miliband was seen as a weak leader. Well, Keir Starmer might not be seen as a strong leader, but he's not seen as a weak one, which is pivotal. And then finally, you know, in 2015, Labour was so far behind on the economy And for the first time since about 2008, I believe, Labour are level pegging, if not ahead of the Tories on the economy. So I think the Conservatives who are relying on, oh, we'll just run the 2015 campaign again and it'll all be fine, are hiding their heads in the sand. Yep. They need to fire up the quattro because it's time for change. Well, that was a 2010 (laughs) but whatever. The next election, whoever the Conservative leader is... Fucking awful. Yeah, and they are going to be fighting the fact that... And I've spoken with a lot of people who I know are swing voters, and they've all said to me, it feels like it's time for a change now. You know, I it may be a, it may be an exaggeration to say that the pendulum always swings, 
But if you look, we had, we had, I think it was 18 years of Conservative government followed by 13 years of Labour government. And we're coming up on 12 years of Conservative-led government now. And genuinely, I think the mood of the country is swinging into its time for a change. And I think based on that, the next Conservative leader has a hell of a challenge on their hand. Yeah, and well, I hope for their sakes they don't elect the equivalent of Ian Duncan Smith, but from a selfish perspective, go ahead, do it. Well, it looks like that's what they're about to do because because um, Rishi Sunak is currently leading in nominations and we're getting into the leadership race now. But Rishi Sunak currently has the most endorsements from Tory MPs, but he is very unpopular with the Tory membership. So I cannot see him winning, which is exactly what happened with Ken Clark and Ian Duncan Smith, because Ken Clark was by far the better candidate for Tory leader. He was by far the more experienced candidate for Tory leader, and he was more popular with the MPs. But the membership, who were rabidly right wing, voted for Ian Duncan Smith, who was then booted out two years later for being abysmal. And it could be well the situation we find ourselves in now, except they're actually in power this time causing there, this chaos. There have been a few, a few surprises um, in the Conservative Party leadership race. So Kemi Badenoch seems to be performing quite well with the Conservative membership. She was performing quite well until she got booted out this afternoon. Well, yes, um, that, that, that's... I, mean, I just, think Kemi I mean, Badenoch... Just, just, just in terms of popularity with the... I don't think... The membership. Seen, yeah, I don't think we've seen the last of her, put it that way. No, I'll completely agree. Kemi Badenoch, despite my own personal feelings about her um, with regards to her views, which I think are pretty abhorrent, um, she's uber right wing, um, but she has a bright future ahead of her. She has laid her standard out, and I very much predict she will be in for a big job in the cabinet, whoever becomes Tory leader particularly if it is Liz Truss and she's relying on Badenox voters to get her into the final two. Should we talk a bit about how the how the leadership election is going to work quickly? I think they <laughs> sacrifice a goat and um, sort of draw out the entrails to find the mark on the liver, which looks most like the... Um, which looks most like um, Liz Truss. How, mm. in, in lightness, Michael, how does the Conservative Party... Um, leadership election work because it is very different to the Labour Party leadership election. Okay, so with regards, I'll just explain the Labour Party one very briefly. So for the Labour Party leadership election, you need 20% of the party's MPs to back you to get on the ballot paper. But once you have 20% of the party's MPs, you are on the ballot paper. So Labour can have up to 5 five candidates now um, if it's all evenly distributed but more likely four candidates but they all go on the ballot paper that then goes to Labour members to vote on and it is then a running list where you vote for your preference for leader and when someone gets over 50% they become the leader. I mean Keir Starmer won on the first ballot in 2020 with 57% of the vote I believe so he won on the first ballot The Conservative leadership election is a little different. So the MPs 
will so you put yourself forward and you have to have at least 20 mps backing you but anyone who gets 20 mps backing you is in the race but then mps vote stage by stage until there are only two candidates left and once there are two candidates left only then do the membership get to vote on which of the two candidates they think they would prefer as their leader. It's a system designed to try and keep out the crazies, as it were, but um, doesn't always work. Uh, but there you go. <laughs> yeah. Well. So who, who who is your pick for the winner then? Okay, well, I will list in, in the three. I will list the three three categories I've been talking about, and I want you to answer the same questions. Okay, fair. So enough. I would say, firstly, who do you think the Conservative Party will pick? Obviously, we're down to three now. We're down to Rishi Sunak, Liz Truss, and Penny Mordaunt. Who do you think the Conservative Party will pick as their leader? Would you like to go first, or shall I? Hang on, do we mean the parliamentary party or do we mean as a whole? As a whole. Once the race is done, who will be prime minister? I'm going to say I think the Conservative Party will pick Liz Truss. I think Penny Mordaunt. Fair enough. Second question. Who do you think would do the best job for the country out of the three candidates? Sunak. Same here. I also think Sunak would probably be the best for the country. And then finally, who do you think would be best for the Labour Party's chances? It's got to be Liz. I would agree. Liz Truss. And I do think that the Conservative Party are going to pick Liz Truss. Who will possibly become the first Prime Minister to have the same name as the monarch in some time. Because we've come around full circle now at the 45. Yes, we have. And, and I think I would just like to leave on one fact before we tie off for the evening. And that is mid-term, the Conservatives have changed their leader eight times since the Second World War during the mid-term. So between elections, the Conservatives have changed their leader eight times since the Second World War. On six of those occasions, they have then gone on to win the next general election. So three quarters of the times they've changed their leader before an election, they've then gone on to win that election. So do keep that in mind, because while we, while Labour supporters like myself might be rubbing our hands at the thought of Prime Minister Truss, history does say that more often than not, changing their leader in the middle of a parliament does give the Tories a boost. Yes, it's just going to come down to whether said boost is enough to make any difference at this stage. And I think they're in a very bad situation, but it is not a situation that should be taken for granted. And as I spent a great deal of time discussing last episode, I think Keir Starmer has spent too much of his time and energy presenting himself as not Boris Johnson and... And now he won't be facing Boris Johnson. He won't be facing Boris Johnson. So he's got to hope that they elect someone as crackpot as Boris Johnson is, because if they elect someone who 
can wear a suit and tie and look smart and be presentable, then he is and not be engulfed in scandals. He's going to be in trouble. And Very potentially. The final, the final thing that I will say, Michael, is that having done some very, very quick research, by which I mean looking at Wikipedia, I can tell you that there have actually been at least three occasions where the Prime Minister has had the same name as the monarch. So Go on then, list them. George Grenville, Prime Minister, 1763 to 1765, same time as Big George III. George III. Then we have George Canning, Prime Minister, 1827, or April 1827, to August 1827. He was Prime Minister at the same time as George IV. Oh, Playboy King, Georgie IV. Indeedy Kins. Then we have William Lamb, Second Viscount Melbourne, Prime Minister from 1834 to, or July 1834, to November 1834, at the same time as William IV. Fun fact, William the Fourth hated him, and it was the last time that a king dismissed a prime minister simply because he didn't like him. Yeah, that was not a particularly um, particularly good move on uh, William the Fourth's part there. Yeah. I know the Queen didn't like Margaret Thatcher, but she never tried to get rid of her. <laughs> well, I think things have changed a little bit since the 1830s. Um, so since then, so since... Lord Melbourne, it has been almost impossible for a prime minister to have the same name as a monarch because between 1837 and 1979, well, actually, actually, I'm I'm talking um, talking rubbish here, yeah. but. You're so going a bit far there. So from, from 1837 18... to 1901. So from 1837 to 1901, obviously all prime ministers were male and there was a queen on the throne. Then during the reign of Edward VII, we have the tenure of Arthur Balfour, Henry Campbell Bannerman, and... <laughs> we're H. going off the rails here. H.H. Asquith. Then you've got George. So there's no Georges around for the um, premiership of sorry, for the um, the reign of King George V. There are no Georges around, or there's no Edwards around during the reign of Edward VIII, and there's no Georges around for the reign of George. And II. of course, since the Queen's taken the throne, there's only been two female Prime Ministers, Margaret and Theresa. Yeah, so Liz Truss will be the fourth person, the fourth Prime Minister... In British in, history. In British history to have the same name as a monarch. The Whoa, question, go on, big up Liz Truss. What will we can then start to work on our card game, which will pit players in historical political situations and try and work out what Liz Truss would do during the Stamp Act. And the she would import cheese, import more cheese. That is a disgrace. And on that oh. bombshell, the time has come to end the episode. It's been a hot one, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, it's just started to drizzle outside my window, and I'm probably going to run out like the end of June. <laughs> All right, guys. It's been great speaking tonight. Awesome. You have a lovely... Yeah, and hopefully we'll be a bit more consistent, but... <laughs> yeah. Knows? 
fuck it. Uh, yeah, t- hopefully two weeks. Michael's even potentially maybe promised a guest next time, but uh, he does like to tease. Hey, we might even get our Northern Ireland special out one of these days. Yeah, well, there you go. And on it's that been- bombshell, good night. Fun. Good night. <laughs>